these are, uh, I'm going to read first the Portuguese uh, and then the English of one poem and then just the English of a second poem. And these are by the uh, Afro-Brazilian writer Cristiano Sobral. Hichina Negra, Black Eye. Sou preta fujona. I'm a black renegade. I refuse the mirror daily. Which tries to massacre me inside. Which tries to deceive me with white lies. Which tries to discolor me with its rays of light. Sou preta fujona. I'm a black renegade. Determined to face the system. I drum up the black without a hitch. I bum rush the stage. Sou preta fujona. Defendo... Um escurecimento necessário. Tiro qualquer racista do armário. I am a black renegade. I advocate a necessary darkening. I unmask any racist in the closet. I shove my foot in the door and walk in. My name is John Keane, and I'm an author, an artist, a translator, a professor at Rutgers University in Newark, where I chair the Department of African American and African Studies and also teach English and creative writing. My earliest exposure to a language that wasn't English um, was probably during my childhood. Um, my mother had uh, and worked with all kinds of people. And uh, I mean, one of her friends was a woman from Italy. And I don't think she spoke that much Italian to us. But I think, um, you know, I, I may have heard her speak Italian. Uh, my father also used to play with us. He had been in the military and served in Germany. And so he would always share these little German phrases with us, which would make us laugh because, you know, it was just hearing German was somewhat unusual. Although I should say St. Louis has a very large uh, German-American population. So in a certain sense, it was not so strange, but on the other other hand, uh, growing up uh, African-American, hearing your father, you know, share phrases from when he was living in Germany uh, as a soldier was a little, little startling. I first uh, started translating when I was in junior high and high school because it was part of the curriculum. Starting in seventh grade, I took French and Latin, and then in ninth grade, I took ancient Greek uh, and then in 10th grade, I th no, 10th, 11th grade, I took uh, German. So I ended up at the high school I attended uh, in St. Louis having about five years of uh, French, was it four years of Latin, uh, two years of Greek, and a year of German. And as part of our pedagogy, uh, we had to do translation. So, I mean, I vividly remember having to uh, translate, for example, poems by Catullus or Francois uh, Moriac's Le Nord de Vipère, the you know the the viper's nest, this, uh, th things like that. So so this was part of my part of my education. I think uh, it was maybe oh uh, some years later uh, when I was in, still in my twenties and I was interested in um, translating. So I I think that was when I began to translate you know a few texts from French and my Spanish was very poor, but. Uh, a person I'd worked with had given me a copy of some books from by Venezuelan authors, and uh, so I, you know, tried my hand at those. Now, of course, when I look back, it was just so rudimentary, but I was just sort of interested in trying to be in, in dialogue with writing from other cultures, um, other languages outside the United States. I've always been interested in language 
and languages. As a kid uh, at, at the local library, they used to have those t- teach yourself X language. And so I remember taking out teach yourself Sanskrit. You know, um, I was sort of fascinated by by Sanskrit. I think at a certain point, I wanted to uh, see if I could learn Swahili. I didn't. I didn't make much progress. And then I thought, gee, it would have been great to have uh, been able to take, uh, you know, Chinese or Japanese when I was younger too. So when I was in college, uh, I had a roommate who was studying Japanese uh, and Chinese actually, and uh, another good friend who was studying Russian. And uh, so I learned, uh, yeah, I still even remember some of those phrases like, you know, in, in Japanese, uh, or in Russian, yeah, my, my favorite, you know, you know, I don't know where my keys are. I don't have my keys. Um, little things like this uh, that were just, you know, sort of still in my head they, and they, they sort of stick. One of the writers that who was really sort of important uh, for me when I was when I began translating and I sort of look back and think it, it was kind of learning as I was doing it so the translations aren't so great uh, and that was uh, the Brazilian writer Edmilson Jomeira Pereira uh, who lives in the city of Juiz de Fora in uh, the sort of south central part of Brazil I think between uh, right near uh, it's in Minas Gerais state on the border between uh, Rio state not far from Rio de Janeiro state and Sao Paulo and Edgemilson's work was very important because it is uh, complex, but not impossible to translate. Uh, it is very musical, and so it presents challenges in terms of how do you bring the sonority of his Portuguese into English and not lose that layer of meaning or those layers of meaning. Uh, it was also very important because it's very culturally grounded in his experience as a black person from a particular part of Brazil, right? So it's not the usual background and history that we see, but he's rooted in a tradition of people who are called Congados, right? Who are descended from the people, people from Congo who were brought to work in the mines in um, Minas Gerais, which means general mines. I was learning and having to learn all at once, all kinds of things about what it took to translate the work of someone that on one level spoke directly to me and would speak, I thought, to readers uh, who picked it up, but on another level presented uh, tremendous challenges. Both translation and fiction writing and all kinds of writing, whips of poetry, all kinds of literature, uh, can play a very crucial role in changing our somewhat occluded view of uh, our past. And by our, I mean, uh, let's say just we can sort of narrow into the uh, American past, the U.S. past. Of course, we all carry around with us um, a sort of idea of whether we challenge it or not, um, of American exceptionalism. You know, the idea that what happened here is singular and has few parallels around the rest of the globe and particularly in the Americas. But the United States was, you know, a settler colonial state. When you sort of think about and look at U.S. history, particularly if you look at the history of other nations in the Americas, you start to see all of these parallels, right? You see that we are on some levels, clearly a distinctive society, but on other levels, the sort of templates were set uh, sort of before the United States even began, or as I said, had a, were running on you know concurrent tracks as U.S. history itself was playing out. So, for example, with Brazil, you know, there you have a European 
country, a uh, maritime country, uh, in the case of Brazil, uh, Portugal, uh, as opposed to Britain, um, that colonizes this landmass. The, the people encounter the indigenous people. In certain cases, they engage in, you know, in extermination. In other cases, uh, forced conversion. Etc. Christianization, and uh, they lay claim to this land. Uh, they create societies. Uh, one of the ways that they sort of power the society is through chattel slavery. And so, I mean, it's it's sort of interesting to me to kind of see how this plays out, and how, of course, questions of race and gender and class, religion, all of these things are playing out in this society that's running parallel to the U.S. So that's why, you know, for example, I think it's important to read works by writers from other societies, particularly uh, societies where there are these similarities, but also uh, differences, right? Uh, because we, it, it can give us not only a profound uh, base of knowledge about the rest of the world, which we need, uh, but also uh, uh, an important perspective on our own society, right? Uh, so we see that we're not so exceptional as uh, we often think we are. And this poem, also by Cristiani Sobral, is... I think a, a really sort of powerful uh, feminist poem, uh, and it's the Portuguese is "Não vou mais lavar os pratos," which is "I won't wash the dishes anymore." I won't wash the dishes anymore. Dust the furniture. I'm sorry. I've begun to read. The other day I opened a book, and a week later I decided I won't carry the trash out to the trash bin or clean up the mess of leaves falling in the yard. I'm sorry. After reading, I noticed each dish has its own aesthetic, an aesthetic of traces, of ethics, of static. I look at my hands as they flip the book's pages, hands much softer than they were before. I feel that I can start to be all the time. I feel. If something happens, I am not going to wash anymore, nor bring your rugs in for dry cleaning. My eyes grow teary. I'm sorry. Now that I've begun to read, I want to understand. Why? Why? And why things exist. I read and I read and I read. I even smiled and left the beans to burn. See, the beans always take time to cook. Let's just say things are different now. Uh, I forgot to say, I won't do it anymore. I've just resolved to have some time for myself. I've resolved to read about what's going on between us. Don't wait for me. Don't call me. I won't be going. From everything I've ever read, from everything I understood, it was you who went too far for too long past the alphabet. It had to be spelled out for you. I won't wash things to cover up the true filth or dust things clean and scatter the dust from here to there and from there to here. I'll disinfect my hands and avoid your moving parts. I won't touch alcohol. After so many years literate, I've learned to read. After so much time together, I've learned to make a break. My sneaker from your shoe, my drawer from your ties, my perfume from your scent, my canvas from your frame. That's how it is. I'm not washing a thing anymore and I stare at the filth at the bottom of the glass. The moment always arrives of shaking things up, of moving forward, of making sense of things. I do not wash dishes anymore. I read the signature on my Emancipation Proclamation in black capital letters, size 18, double spaced. I set myself free. I do not wash dishes anymore. I want silver platters, deluxe kitchens, and gold jewelry, the real kind. So is the Emancipation Proclamation decreed. I think that the books that 
I write in English do in part come out of a translator's mindset or perhaps another way of putting it is translation has allowed me to the extent possible, you know, my, my linguistic facilities, you know, uh, and limits, right? Access to other ways of seeing the world, right? I mean, they're here because people from all over the world are in the United States, but they're usually not so visible or immediately visible. I mean, when I was, when I was in my twenties, one of the things that I strongly felt was that I was reading a lot of work, particularly in terms of fiction, that was capturing the world, was depicting the world, it was representing the world, but it was not doing it with the complexity, with the strangeness, with the queerness uh, that I felt that I saw other people uh, experiencing and uh, living through, right? So the language was inadequate to the experience. Now, I think there's always a way in which, you know, language can only do so much. And I think, you know, for example, Walter Benjamin said that the artwork is the uh, death mask of its conception, right? So, you know, you're never going to capture that uh, that original feeling, right? Although part of what often grasps us in successful art is, if it's not that original feeling, it is a powerful feeling, a powerful mood, uh, some, some, you know, an image, something that, that carries through and is transformed so that we can connect with it, right? Or that we have to grapple with. So there's that. The other thing I would say is that, you know, one of the things that I've often also thought about is the famous linguist Roman Jakobson's idea of, you know, kind of the metaphoric and metonymic poles, right? And he placed poetry on the metaphorical end of that pole and fiction on the metonymic. So in the sense that, you know, poetry, as you were saying, is able to provide us with metaphors that convey experience, right? Uh, powerful metaphors that resonate even after we've set the poem down, language, metaphors, imagery. And fiction, in a sense, is a stand-in for a whole series of experiences and a kind of index of life, right? And so as a translator, I mean, one of the things that I have to think about is forms in fiction and poetry that uh, are not the forms that we usually see in Anglophone literature, particularly U.S. literature. And the question is how then to carry those over, bring those over into English, but also in doing so, I'm learning that there are these other ways of possibly thinking about writing, thinking about language, thinking about translating experience into and as literature. Well, a very good example of a text that Though it, it, you know, the author was in conversation with Anglophone literature, but that was quite different from what we tend to see in, uh, let's say, 20th century American fiction, uh, was Hilda Hill's Letters from a Seducer, Cartesian Seducer. What fascinated me about this book is there are many ways that you could categorize it. Of course, at the most basic level, you know, because a novel can be so many things or anything, it is a novel. It's also a series of tales, which I think of as, you know, some are in the beginning satirical uh, and ribald, and then at the end they grow more serious, but there's always a kind of a humorous edge to them. Uh, there's also, uh, she uses the epistolary uh, form, which is, of course, one of the oldest forms uh, for the novel, and particularly the English novel. I think of you know uh, Samuel Richardson's Clarissa and Pamela, but also, of course, has uh, has roots in other uh, linguistic traditions. So she, So you've got both the very old and, of course, you've got the very new, right? Uh, you know, she's 
cites pretty much on every page a different author from the kind of 20th century uh, global canon. She uses the discourse of pornography and erotic literature. And then, of course, she has, as I said, this kind of another level of writing that's really quite philosophical. It verges almost on nonfiction in a sense. Um, it's, you know, she sort of slows the narrative down, and this character is engaging in um, sort of profound kind of um, self-analysis. This is the final paragraph of Hilda Hilst's remarkable novel, Letters from a Seducer. And in this paragraph, one paragraph, she is able to capture uh, the essence of a novel that is for the most part, I think, uncharacterizable uh, and very hard to kind of sum up, but she does it here. He was telluric and unique. He was dreaming. He dreamt of goodbyes and shadows. He dreamt of gods. He was cruel because he had always been desperate. He encountered a human angel so that they might live together on earth forever. He cut off his wings. The other one killed himself, plunging into the waters. I am still alive today. I'm old. At night, I drink a lot and look at the stars. Often, I write. Then I reconsider that one, the snowy breath, the desperation. I lie down. Austerely, I dream that I sow black beans and wings across a dark, sometimes mother-of-pearl earth. So you, she's put all of these things together, and I would say that if you gave a novel like this to um, most U.S. publishers, they would say, I don't know what to do with this. I'm not going to publish this. Of course, this is true of all of Hilda Hilsch's books, just as it is true of, you know, for example, Clarice Lispector and other kinds of ways. I mean, these are authors who are doing these really kind of remarkable uh, things that are not the sorts of things that we usually see uh, in English. I mean, I feel the same way about, I mean, you could pick up a writer like Patrick Chamoiseau, right? You could go into different parts of the globe and, and find different authors who are doing different things, authors I haven't even uh, translated. I mean, I was thinking of a book, it's already been translated, Ella Mabonku's Broken Glass, where, I mean, I read that novel, I think it's just absolutely brilliant, and it is kind of a fable, but then it has this marvelous sort of uh, political edge to it. And there's a speech uh, in which he sort of sends up, I mean, not just Congolese history and tradition and politics, but sort of Francophone and French uh, history and tradition, and also kind of global African-American and African diasporic uh, tradition. So, I mean, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X make a, an appearance in this book. I mean, and it's just, it's so fascinating to uh, sort of see what he's doing. But again, this is not the sort of book you usually see uh, in Anglophone American literature. I decided to write the article Translating Poetry, Translating Blackness, in part for the Thinking Its Presence uh, conference, a marvelous uh, conference named after the really sort of extraordinary uh, scholarly study by Dorothy Wong on Asian American literature, but also on race and poetry and poetics. So I think that was the, the, the initial impetus for the essay. And it got me to sort of thinking about translation 
and a translation on multiple levels, particularly the sort of positive translation of authors of African descent from across the globe, uh, but also another way of thinking about translation, which is to say the asymmetrical dialogue in terms of blackness, particularly coming from the U.S., right, in relation to other forms of blackness or other blacknesses, right, other black peoples uh, across the globe. But that was sort of the impetus, and I was very fortunate that Daniel Borzutsky was curating a uh, special section on uh, the Poetry Foundation's Herod website on translation, and he invited me to participate, and that was my contribution. So let me read a little section from the essay, Translating Poetry, Translating Blackness. And this is beginning of section three, the living breath of a new light to everyone. Why is this absence of translated black voices significant? One of the ongoing problems, if I can state it bluntly, is that if we already are experiencing serious and ongoing crisis in American society, in part through the omission, elision, and erasure of and indifference to narratives, stories, and other forms of imaginative expression in all their complexity of black American people's lives and existences, an issue that affects not only black Americans, but everyone in the society, as the Native American writer Bill Yellowrobe, among many others, underlined in a talk he delivered at the 2016 Thinking Its Presence Conference, the same is true with narratives, stories, plays, and so on by indigenous peoples, to give another glaring example, we further limit our understanding of the world in multiple ways in the absence of black stories and voices from outside the Anglosphere, which is not a coherent whole, but nevertheless is limited in its capacity to convey the breadth and experience of black peoples across the globe. Just as black Americans are hardly a fringe, neither are black people and voices from the rest of the globe. Well, there's a lot to say about the question of the lack of representation of black people or people of color across the globe. And of course, it's an issue for publishing. It's an issue for Hollywood. It's an issue for TV. I mean, I think we can see on one level remarkable and another level, to me, not at all surprising success, for example, of Black Panther or, you know, crazy rich Asians. The desire for people to see themselves, right, is is tremendous. And this makes me think of, so I'm going to take a slight digression. I think it was yesterday or the day before I was reading Twitter, looking at Twitter, and I saw someone commenting on the spate of studies that are looking at this sort of vexed racial slash racist uh, history of any number of U.S. institutions. So whether it's museums or whether it's libraries or whether it's hospitals or whether it's universities, right? You know, there's really amazing work being done by historians and sociologists, right? Social scientists who are looking at the past and the complexity of the past. And one of the questions that this person who was tweeting about this said was, why didn't anyone ever tell us about this, right? And one of the first responses was, who is us? And I responded that, in fact, I grew up hearing about this complex raced and racist history because my parents and my grandparents, like I myself, have been someone who has, you know, experienced this history, right? It's it's lived experience, right? But the problem is that again and again and again, these narratives, 
have not gotten the exposure that what we could say sort of master narratives or mainstream narratives do, right? Which is to say white narratives, which also then leads to things like white racial innocence, white fragility, and so on, right? So I say all this to say that it's a problem for the U.S., it's a problem for the rest of the globe, and I think it's something that we, that I was sort of grappling with on one level in the essay, but I think, of course, that this is something that a lot of people are talking about because it's really quite important, right? And the, the more we know, to a certain degree at least, the more it allows us to be able to sort of understand how to address the problems that continue to go unaddressed. And this is it's true for race, it's true for gender, you know, it's true for, uh, in terms of religious difference, it's true for sexualities. So I say all this to say that, right, you know, I think, I think you're, you know, sort of delving into the archive and bringing things to light and, and, and not just, you know, but, but, and then trying to have a conversation as difficult as, and fraught as it may be, I think is, is absolutely crucial. Well, one of the ways that we can cultivate more translators, just for example, if we take, for example, non-European languages or African writers writing in European languages, is to cultivate. We have to train and cultivate uh, translators. And uh, that is not easy because it, on the one hand, as the uh, amazing poet and translator Rosa Alcala has pointed out and uh, other others have, have spoken about this as well, you know, you have many people who grow up in households with multiple languages, right? So uh, finding ways to ensure that if they don't see it as a burden, which it can be, but as a, as a gift to cultivate uh, their interest in translation is, is one way of going about it. And another way is to try to ensure that, you know, uh, young writers, let's say, who do not grow up in multilingual households, and even older ones, right, that they have an opportunity to spend time studying and working on translations. Uh, the Again, the economics are a challenge uh, because there is not a lot of money in translation. So the question is, you know, you have to be able to find the time to devote your your efforts towards translation. Uh, so figuring ways of funding translation, which do exist in, uh, at a small scale now, uh, and particularly maybe some that are targeted to, you know, areas of the world uh, and languages that are under-translated uh, would be very helpful. For example, there are far more people who speak the languages of South India than speak the languages of Northern Europe. We're talking about millions and millions of people. In the United States, we see comparatively few translations of, you know, for example, South Indian writers and uh, quite a few from Scandinavia, right? Now, that's a, there, there, there's a kind of history behind that. And there's a reason why, uh, we, you know, there's this imbalance. But, I mean, what if there were funds targeted to translation of works from parts of the world and uh, from linguistic uh, cultures that we don't usually uh, see in English? For example, uh, you have a wonderful organization uh, like Cave Canem, absolutely important uh, space for uh, black poetry. Perhaps, you know, down the road, Cave Canem or a similar organization might offer uh, a kind of week for potential black translators, right? And uh, some of them might be, again, multilingual, some of them not, some of them might have experience, some experiences translators, some might not. But it could be a kind of workshop. And I think having those in different places, so having them 
at uh, HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, having a few, finding translators interested, you know, at majoritarian, uh, institute, white majority institutions might be a good idea. And then if we step outside the sort of university college system, and we think about, you know, certain communities where there's linguistic diversity in the U.S. and interest, there might be interest among uh, poets, writers, translators, artists in translation. That might be another way to go. And of course, the challenge is always going to be money, right? Who's, how are you going to fund this? And I'd also say I've, I've heard from uh, some uh, translators who have read the article. Some of them had already been interested in translation. Some of them have been spurred by it and uh, are now thinking about translating black authors from across the globe. And these are black, young black translators uh, that I've, I've heard from. The expanding platforms for sharing work, for self-expression, I think have led to, at a certain level, a kind of democratization uh, in terms of writing and publishing. So because of blogs, uh, because you know, the ease of self-publishing because of uh, social media sites like uh, Twitter, Tumblr, uh, which of course is <laughs> controversial because of recent thing that happened there, Instagram, etc. cetera. Uh, I think people do have more ways to share uh, their work. I mean, we even now have Instagram poets like Rupi Kaur who have become famous in part through the social media platform that they employ. Uh, and then, of course, we also have more ways of sharing work in terms of performance with a platform like YouTube, for example, where you can record yourself reading your own work or readings you're doing, etc. Whether that has transformed uh, what we might think of as kind of uh, tr the traditional publishing industry, as much as, you know, the ec economic challenges they face is another uh, question. A few years ago, uh, they did a study of the publishing industry, and what they found was the publishing industry was overwhelmingly white, particularly in the publishing industry in New York, and overwhelmingly women, and women of a particular uh, class background. So in the sense that people... In publishing, we think about the sort of elite publishing world, uh, the New York Center publishing world, that they may not see the world uh, with the sort of range and richness of perspectives of so many people who are not part of that world. It makes sense that the publishing world has not changed. And in fact, I mean, I, I do sometimes wonder too, as we've seen in with our politics, if there hasn't been a kind of, on the one hand, you know, a kind of gesture towards multiculturalism and diversity, right? Accompanied at the same time by a certain kind of retrenchment, right? That can, in some cases, be uh, justified or has been justified through, you know, uh, economics, right? So we can't publish certain things because they're not going to sell. But of course, the flip of that is if you don't publish them, you never know. So I think it's, it's, it's a very interesting time and a very challenging time. I mean, I think it depends on where you stand. I mean, when I think of young poets and uh, writers of color, there are some who are doing very, very well. And then there are some who uh, struggle to get their work into print as we traditionally understand it, even though, for example, they may be publishing their work using social media platforms, et cetera, non-traditional sites that you know probably will become traditional as we move forward. Uh, I'm just going to read a, a small section of a collaborative book I did with the 
photographer Nicholas Milner. Uh, we met at Image Text Ithaca, ITI, and uh, we realized that we had a kind of a very similar <laughs> uh, project underway. Uh, I was collecting the language from sort of online uh, friendship slash dating apps uh, because it was just so fascinating. It was so banal at one level and so deep at another, so um, vulnerable. And uh, at the same time, you know, so forbidding. And Nicholas was finding very similar photographs, but uh, with the faces of the figures, the men uh, pixelated out. So this is just a little snippet from uh, the book Grind. What's up? I like tops. What's down? Yes, he knows. Locked in. Ask if you must. Originally from New Jersey. Lover of libraries. The package gets the most press. It is what it is, unapologetic, regular masculine, enjoying life. If it's a six-pack, be smart and mature, big man, not into fats or femmes. Can someone buy me a drink? I have only a heart to offer. All-American, next door, small town, bunny, rather buff dork, searching for similar, no one over 30. I'm a real cool dude till Monday. Back up, though. I can't breathe. Have to just smile. Like you're my next ex. I'm your gate agent. No free pass. Try again. Messages do not always get through. Cocktail, beer, cigarettes, blunts at my house. You have to have a lot of backbone to live the life you want. In the journey of life, where do you fit in? I want younger like it's golden. Yellow on the outside, what's within. No worries. Twinks are pretty boys. Grenades need not apply. Show me what you got. Cuddle buds and carnage. I'm your guy. Welcome here. Rub my belly. Bar suck. Just seeing life unfolding. A few years ago at AWP, I chaired a, a panel on translating LGBTQ authors. And uh, I'm going to forget all of the wonderful people who were on that panel. But one of them was the, the writer and translator, Netanyahu, and uh, who has just really sort of profound thoughts about uh, the challenges of translating LGBTQ writers. Um, I would say, for example, again, one of the challenges, one of the dangers, it's, it's somewhat different. Our understanding of blackness being shaped by African-American experience, right? The understanding of queerness being shaped by U.S., uh, sort of U.S. history and U.S. experience, U.S. LGBTQ people. Now, there's a way in which, without realizing it, kind of reproduce a hegemony in terms of our understanding of what it means to be queer, because to be queer may mean many different things in many different places. And there are always these sort of parallels, but differences that can be elided, right? If we simply slap names onto experiences and practices that are similar, but also culturally grounded and thus distinct. So for example, just thinking about South Central Africa and sort of you know queerness and queer practices and the long tradition it, uh, that existed there that was sort of brought over to the U.S. to places like Brazil, uh, the Caribbean, uh, probably even the United States, uh, but then became something else and were renamed certain some other things and are now under sort of on the one hand perhaps forgotten and on the other hand sort of misunderstood or we're having to try to rethink and reclaim this past poses challenges for when we look at what's happening in the societies from which these practices came today. So how do people think of themselves, particularly when we think about, you know, the kind of circulation of culture 
ideas, discourses, and we think about, for example, evangelical Christianity and how that has taken root in so many, for example, parts of South Central Africa. And so people may, on the one hand, uh, have these practices kind of as a tradition, but they're not going to view them or voice them in the same way they would. On the other hand, they're also seeing the world as shaped in part by the discourse of evangelical Christianity. And at the same time, of course, they, they see the kind of circulation of global LGT cultures. And so, I mean, I think there's a, there's all this conversation that's happening. And the question is, how do you untangle that, right? And of course, there are very smart people who are doing that. But when it comes to sort of translating literature that's coming out of those societies, it poses certain kinds of challenges. So to give you one example, in uh, South Central Africa and what's parts of Congo and Angola, the historian James Sweet has documented how, in fact, there were people who were sort of the spiritual figures, uh, and they used names like Jimbada, Kimbanda, right, in the, the Bantu languages of that region. And those practices were brought over to Brazil. And when the representatives of the Inquisition encountered them, the Catholic Church encountered them, of course, they saw them as like, you know, just homosexuality. Well, even before that was named, right, same sexual practices that were sins. A few years ago, I ran into James at Tweet at a conference in Northwestern, and he said to me, very interestingly, that those spiritual practices still exist, right? They're kind of underground. You know, the people sometimes will use the language of U.S. LGBT culture, right? So they might use say things like gay, et cetera. So, but in fact, it is something different, right? It sort of precedes our understanding of of the term gay or, you know, the sort of European invention in the sense of, well, homosexuality and heterosexuality, et cetera. So, but it involves same sexual practices that were sort of carried over and that, you know, are still sort of in place where they began. But in fact, both the ways that the people who are practicing them understand them and the ways that people outside there and you know, where, where those practices have circulated have also changed, right? So, I mean, it's kind of complex, you know, uh, and I, I don't want to bore listeners, but I think it's really kind of fascinating to think about how this, this stuff happens. And then, but, but it, what, what also I want to just kind of point out is it allows people to then say, you know, homosexuality was something that was brought by the Europeans, which is not true, or same sexuality was something that was brought by the Europeans, you know, or colonialism, which is not true, you know, but also the harsh backlash against it in part is a product of the West and, and evangelical Christianity, et cetera. When I was an undergraduate at Harvard, I think had I studied, for example, let's say romance languages and literatures or, you know, I, I, I think there were people teaching African languages, but it's not the way it is today with the Department of African and African American Studies where uh, they actually do have, you know, extensive classes in uh, African languages, et cetera. My undergraduate years were sort of a four-year hiatus from translation to a certain extent, although I was reading quite a bit of non-U.S. literature. And then in graduate school, I mean, NYU, this was right before the MFA started. My second year in the program, NYU uh, received permission to offer the MFA. So originally I was in the MA program and then was admitted to the PhD program, but I took the MFA. And it was really focused on writing. You know, if you were in the fiction track, you focused on fiction. If you were in the poetry track, you focused on poetry. And tra again, translation was not so important are integral. So again, that may have changed. I, but but I would say that most institutions in the U.S., most MFA programs, I think, don't see translation as that important. I mean, there are few where, you know, it really is a kind of special focus or it's integrated into the program 
or for example, MFA programs, there, you know, there's usually a person, there may be a person who offers classes in a translation. When I taught at Northwestern, there were several people who include my colleague, Reg Gibbons, who actually taught a wonderful course in translation. Uh, and then there was, uh, I think, even a graduate course in translation that he uh, co-taught with another colleague, Susanna Gottlieb. So that was more translation theory. But I, I still don't think it's uh, considered that important because, you know, the U.S. is a big country. Uh, you know, we tend to look inward as opposed to outward. These things, you they, they sort of, they shape how you think about what's possible. They influence me in terms of wanting to extend the conversation uh, beyond English, right? Which is a, a, a long tradition in African-American letters and an important tradition in African-American letters, right? Uh, so, and in American letters. One of the things I would say to my younger self in terms of translation is, uh, if you can afford to <laughs> travel uh, to the uh, places uh, where the languages that you want to translate are spoken, uh, and it doesn't have to be just, I mean, of course, it's spoken in different uh, places uh, by different uh, cultural groups. That's actually to the better, to travel to different places if you can. Of course, not everyone can afford to travel. Another thing I would, would say is avail yourself of the resources that are out there. So there are translation grants, uh, there are workshops that you can apply for funding for. And then, of course, above all, you know, be practicing translation and not assume that, okay, because you are struggling with it at first, uh, that it's something that you can't do. And also to sort of read up on translation because there are many different ways to translate work. So you can work with another writer or artist. Um, you can, of course, they're very sort of uh, playful forms of translation, which are some, some of which are a little controversial. But I mean, you know, sort of availing yourself of, of the resources that are out there uh, can be very, very helpful. And above all, read trans works in translation and also works that have, uh, you know, let's say both languages side by side. So even if it's a language that you don't know, you can actually learn how translators solve or do not solve and do not resolve uh, challenges that, that they face with uh, translating work from another language. This is a poem by the Brazilian writer Paulo Leminski, who's one of my favorites. And uh, as you'll see when I read the poem, uh, first in Portuguese and in English, he poses particular challenges uh, for translators in part because he draws upon the particular linguistic resources of Portuguese, uh, especially sound and punning. This poem is titled Anave Alice. Anave Alice, como se nada visse, como se nada ali estivisse, como se Ana não existe. Vendo Ana, Alice descobre a análise. Ana Valice, de análise de Alice, face Ana Alice. Ana sees Alice. Ana sees Alice as if she saw nothing, as if nothing were there, as if Ana did not exist. Seeing Ana, Alice discovers analysis. Ana uses Alice's analysis. Ana becomes Alice. I think uh, when it comes to questions of who is translating what work, 
and how we think about it, that in relation to, for example, questions of cultural appropriation. Uh, it's important to have people who are interested in translation and people who are sensitive to the work, the writers, the cultures that they are translating the work from. And we all can make mistakes. Um, I was at the University of Iowa a few weeks ago, and I was talking about, for example, when I was translating Edgemilson Jomeda Pereira, and I did not know about the Congaro tradition, and uh, I mistook it originally for Candomblé. I was very fortunate that I was in conversation with Edgemilson and could share the work with him so that he could sort of say to me uh, in very kind, very kind way, no, it's not that tradition that you know about, but this it's this other tradition. And of course, I later learned that he and his wife, uh, who's an amazing scholar, that they had actually written about this extensively. So, I mean, he, this was something he knew in a very sort of profound sense. And I, it was an education for me. So I think, you know, there are challenges that every translator faces. And part of that is the limitations that we bring based on our own uh, cultural life experience. But that said, I think if people are very open and very sensitive to the work that they're translating, if they make a sometimes very difficult and sincere effort to immerse themselves and thus capture as much of the culture that they're translating from, I think you can have uh, uh, amazing work. Um, but then again, that doesn't mean that we don't have blind spots or bring limitations to uh, the work that we try to do. Some of us have to do more work than others uh, when we move through the world, right? If you are not white, you often have to put yourself in the perspective of white people to sort of understand how the world is, you know, kind of set up, right? So you can survive. Uh, if you are a woman, uh, you have to, uh, you know, put yourself in the perspective of a man to see, you know, how things are set up and uh, to, to survive. Uh, you know, so I, I feel like the best fiction writing, despite whatever limits the writer brings, involves this, these kinds of imaginative leaps. And I think translation does as well, uh, whether you're, you're imagining it and trying to embody it in, you know, prose fiction or you're trying to represent it in bringing that from, from the other language into English, and there just might not be a language for it. So the question is, how do I find the language for it, or do I create a language to capture this experience? Or, you know, in certain cases, translators just kind of I won't say they throw up their hands, but they, you know, they might have extensive notes saying there is no way to convey this in English. So this is what I had to do. You've been listening to episode 64 of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. This is the second episode in our special series on translation. This episode was edited and mixed by Becca DiGregorio and produced by myself, Doreen Wang, Christine LaRusso, and Nicholas Fuenzalita. Music for our translation series was written and performed by Nathaniel Wokstein. To become a patron of Commonplace, please go to commonpodcast.com. There, you will also find the liner notes to the readings you heard and links to the people and texts John Keane mentioned in this episode. 
Patrons will receive exclusive access to an audio file of John Keane reading his poem, Dark to Themselves, and some patrons will receive counter-narratives or annotations, both by John Keane, or Broken Glass by Alain Mamboncou. Many thanks to New Directions and to Soft Skull for donating copies of these wonderful books. Thank you to our patrons. You make Commonplace possible. Thank you to everyone who reviews Commonplace on iTunes or recommends it to friends and students. And to you, listener, thank you for listening. Listener.